You're listening to Radio Free Philosophy. Welcome back to Radio Free Philosophy. My name is Kevin Brown. And I'm Bob Urquhart. And we're starting our third season after quite a long hiatus, but we've got some exciting programs ahead. And before we get to that, I'd like to remind everybody to uh, contact us, please, with questions or comments at askaphilosopher at yahoo.com. And also, I guess we should welcome our new friends from MySpace and iTunes. Mm -hmm. We're now on both of those. So welcome if you're listening to us through MySpace or iTunes. It's good to have you out there. And uh, we welcome your comments as well. So today we're going to start a series of discussions about ethics. Yeah, you might say morality. They mean the same thing because they come from similar words, similar roots. Ethos, mores, they both mean custom. So whether you talk about ethics and morality, it's really the same thing. We're talking about what's right and what's wrong. And we should start off today with uh, one one field of ethics, that's one pr- interpretation of ethics that's dear to the hearts of most students. From my experience, and I'm sure, Kevin, you have the same experience, most students we have in class are cultural relativists or ethical relativists. They're subjectivists. They, yeah. they remind us of uh, Protagoras, whom Plato uh, kind of shot down many centuries ago. Protagoras said, man is the measure of all things. And by that he seems to mean that an individual person is the determinator, the determinant of what is good or bad, right or wrong. Now, if that is the case, Plato said, there would be no objective standard for right or wrong. And most students are comfortable with that. Certainly. Yeah, they they express it in several different ways, but it does come to the same thing. They'll say things like, well, isn't morality just all a matter of opinion? Or something like, uh, well, don't different cultures have different beliefs about what's right and wrong? And who are we to tell uh, that culture that they're doing something wrong just because we do something different. Uh, Alan Bloom once famously said in his book, The Closing of the American Mind, uh, speaking to professors, uh, the one thing you can be certain of as you walk into a class is that all your students believe truth is relative. Mm-hmm. They don't quite know why they believe it. It's not a reflective view. They haven't thought through it, but they certainly do believe it. And I think that comes out very powerfully in any discussion of ethics sure. or morality. Bloom spoke from the same kind of experience you and I have had in class all these years. And I don't wish to point fingers, but it is perhaps the most convenient ethical position. Because once you adopt it, you are quite confident knowing that no one can say your positions are wrong. Right. There's almost uh, uh, the the idea that it's wrong is logically precluded. And I suspect that it also... uh, feels very good to be a relativist in one sense because relativism encourages tolerance. Uh, and nobody is uh, is against tolerance, even those that are, are going to criticize relativism. Uh, but there's a difference between being tolerant and recognizing that there are such things as uh, ethical norms or standards. There's an interesting example um, that I read once. A, a student wrote a paper defending relativism, and they concluded with the claim that everyone ought to be tolerant. It's always wrong to be intolerant. And 
as we look through relativism, we'll see that there's a problem there. That's the problem lurking at the heart of relativism, is that it's based on a fundamental contradiction. Sure. We'll have to see how that plays out. Logically, you, you can't hold the position that everyone ought to be tolerant. There, you've already voiced an absolute. Yeah, and that's exactly what relativism denies. As I said, there are many different ways of categorizing it. Some people simply say, well, different cultures have different moral standards. Another way of putting it is to say that there's no such thing as an objective moral standard. Uh, there's no independent standard separate from all cultures. Each culture makes up its own standard for right and wrong. And so that necessarily denies that there's an absolute principle. So you can't at the same time say you're a relativist and then say that this principle is absolute, namely that everyone ought to be tolerant. Because if somebody comes along and says, well, I'm intolerant, well, then what do you do about them? Well, you can't do anything about them. You'd have to say, well, they must be right in their view. It's different than mine, but I have to let them have it. Yes, as soon as you call them wrong, they're wrong according to your code, but not according to theirs. And that's kind of a contradiction. Not just kind of a contradiction, it is one. You can't have both. So, So, uh, you know, some people might be saying, well, but what's wrong with this idea of of relativism? Because isn't it, it just a matter of live and let live? I mean, it's not up to us to go around to tell people... Uh, that they're wrong. I think this is a, a fundamental point that people misunderstand when we try to criticize relativism. It, it's not that it, it's not that by saying relativism is wrong, we're saying that we now are the arbiters of what is right. Mm-hmm. I think people confuse the notion of an objective standard with uh, a standard that we just happen to make up. I mean, if it's objective, it's not simply a matter of us saying it. It's a matter of the nature of morality, maybe you could say, or the nature of the world in which we live, that there are certain things that have to be considered moral principles, regardless of the culture you live in. We like to think that there are universally applicable norms. Um, Killing, or molesting a child, or forced sexual relations or the mutilation of a person. But along those same lines, mutilation would provide a good example of the argument for cultural relativism. For example, we speak of a a Central African and um, Middle Eastern practice called female genital mutilation. The very word mutilation gives it a negative overtone because it's it's something that's horrendous to us. The idea that that a, a young girl can have her labia sewn up and have her clitoris removed even by a, a sharp stone is reprehensible to us. And yet, in several cultures, even to our day, that is considered a cultural norm, a good thing to do. Now, how can we say that that's wrong if, if morality is relative? Well, one way to do it is to to not have uh, the standard seem to be imposed from without, but look at what the culture is actually doing and see whether the standard is being upheld from within. We just assume that because another culture does that, they believe it's the right thing to do. Uh, It's not necessarily the case that there's universal adulation for female circumcision in the countries that perform it. 
in some cases it's been documented that uh, that a majority of the uh, the women in such countries are against the practice mm-hmm. they're actively fighting against it so the mere fact that a culture does something doesn't mean that they believe it's the right thing to do or of course another way of thinking about it is the mere fact that a culture does something doesn't mean it is the right thing to do we don't have to look to a foreign culture to figure that out we can look to our own uh, slavery in the mm. 18th and 19th century uh, was practiced in this country the fact that it was practiced certainly doesn't imply that it was correct to be practiced nor does it imply that everybody believed it was correct there were certainly many people who were abolitionists mm-hmm so I think that's a big mistake that people who are relativists make is thinking that because another culture does something, first of all, it must be right for them to do it, and second of all, that they must believe that it's right. Yeah, we get back to our test of truth. If, if, if something works for you, if you believe it to be right, then it's true for you, but that doesn't make it absolutely true. I've found, and this may be getting us into a different subject, but it's certainly related, that, that many people are very comfortable with the notion of something is true for them but maybe not true for you. Mm-hmm. I have to say in all my years of thinking about this uh, and teaching philosophy and teaching logic, I, I still can't come up with any clear sense of what this notion means. What could it mean for someone to say, it's true for me that the earth is flat? It might not be true for you, mm-hmm. but it's true for me. Mm-hmm. I can't begin to imagine what that could possibly mean in any coherent sense. And yet many people seem very willing to to hold that belief and allow others to hold that belief as well without challenging them. Well, we see signs of this kind of contradiction surfacing in modern American society. We have a, a cult of fundamentalist members of the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, Mormons, who uphold polygamy as being the truth for them and the only way of having a family. We we see this given a religious basis. They believe it was true, and they hold it to be true today. Yet, the clear majority of the population of the United States is opposed to polygamy, but they uphold it on, on the grounds of religious freedom. They believe it's true for them, but they clash with the whole rest of society. Now, we can't ever get back to the position that the majority makes ethical standards, because we'd be in big trouble then. In the United States, the majority was in favor of slavery at one time. That doesn't make it right. Um, Another example comes from, I hate to keep using religion, but the religion called Santeria. That's very popular in Cuba and Brazil. And as we get more immigrants into this country, we get more people practicing Santeria. Uh, It's estimated there might be as many as 5 million people in America who hold to these beliefs. Now, Santeria involves animal sacrifice. And so we have the bizarre situation in some of our prisons of offering religious guidance to prisoners. But when you have prisoners who are members of the Santeria cult, they want to practice their religion, and they want to sacrifice animals. They want goats brought in, they want rabbits brought in, they want chickens brought into the prison so they can slit their throats. Now, it's true for them that this is the right way to worship. But does that make it objectively good? Yeah, and this is the the real problem that any form of relativism comes up against, is can you defend the claim that something is true for you while not being true for, for others? And one way perhaps to resolve this 
that uh, a philosopher named James Rachels offers in, in a nice little book on ethics called The Elements of Moral Philosophy. He says, we need to look at, at, at why these particular cultures or groups of people are doing what they're doing before we conclude that they really are fundamentally different from us. He makes a nice distinction, uh, which I don't know will, will help in the case you just cited, but it might, between beliefs and values. The case he, he uses to illustrate is the Hindu practice of not eating cows, mm-hmm. um, even if people are, are, are starving. And so we look at them and we say, well, they must have fundamentally different moral uh, values than we do. But the answer might be a little more subtle than that. We might have the same values, but are practicing differently because we have different specific beliefs. So he makes a distinction between values and beliefs. He says perhaps um, they have a belief in reincarnation that entails that it's possible that their grandmother be one of those cows. Mm-hmm. And of course, they don't want to eat their grandmother. We don't either. So we share that in common, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but because of the difference in our beliefs, the practice gets played out differently in different cultures. And cultures have such historical roots that the values sometimes become lost or disconnected from the basis for the value. For example, in the case you cite, the, uh, the cow in Hindu culture, why is the cow reverenced? It's not just reincarnation. It's that the, uh, the invaders of the Indian subcontinent 1,500 years ago or more were cow herders, and they valued the cow for what it could give, milk. It was more valuable as a milk giver than it was uh, to be eaten. We've, we've got the expression, you killed the goose that laid the golden egg. Well, why kill an animal that gives you food, gives you in the form of milk and cheese? And then a cow is more valuable alive than dead because a cow excreted. And when it excreted, cow flops, when dried, become very, very valuable fuel for cooking. And in a, in a continent that's been denuded of trees, that cow flop becomes extremely valuable. For us, it's just waste. For them, it's valuable. Uh, and then you have to add the, the bizarre practice of bathing in cow urine as a purification, a ritual purification. Now, all these things make the live cow more valuable than a dead cow. So these values are culturally rooted. Yeah, take so the, the roots away. Right. This goes to the point that we have to examine why a culture is doing something before we can determine whether it's really different or, or based on different values than, than our practice and something else I think that illustrates is that uh, cultural beliefs tend to outlive their usefulness sometimes. Indeed. For example, the, um, the case of female genital mutilation. Why was that practiced? Well, at, at the heart is the denial of sexual pleasure to a young woman so that she will not stray from her husband. And the sewing of the labia was intended to keep a woman a virgin until marriage. Well... Culturally, we've gone beyond that, it seems yeah. to me. And so the, the, the practice makes no sense. Right, and so uh, it's going to take perhaps a, a little time before the practice disappears, even though the underlying reasons for it have, have disappeared. Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps we could take a break, and then on the other side we can talk a little more about some of the specific uh, other problems with relativism and the ways out of them. This podcast is brought to you by TranquilityRetreat.com.
here we are back from the break, and let's just give some critical thinking and logical analysis to the issue of cultural relativism. Let's say that we define a cultural relativist as someone who maintains that whatever believers or whatever members of a culture believe is morally right and good is in fact morally right and good for them. Now, that's the core belief. So let's say you're a member of culture C and you're studying cultures A and cultures B. You're a committed cultural moral relativist. In other words, you maintain wholeheartedly the relativist thesis that whatever members of a culture believe to be morally right is, in fact, morally right for them. Now you're studying culture A. Culture A is a pacifist culture and believes that it's always morally wrong to commit a violent act against another human being for any reason. You're also studying culture B. Culture B is a militaristic and slave-holding culture. Its members believe that it's morally good and right to invade, subjugate, and enslave other cultures. Now, while you're observing these two cultures, culture B invades culture A. What can you say about the morality of culture A that lets itself be invaded? What can you say about the morality of culture B that invades and subjugates? As a moral relativist, can you criticize or condemn either culture? Yeah, this to me seems like it illustrates very clearly the problem that relativists have, because if I was a member of Culture C, if I was the relativist, uh, before the invasion, of course, I would be very happy and very tolerant and enlightened to say, well, of course, Culture A is right in its beliefs and is justified in having them, and so is Culture Mm -hmm. B, and uh, isn't everything just fine and dandy? The problem, of course, uh, is already lurking right there, but doesn't become... Uh, maybe obvious until culture B invades and then uh, I imagine a lot of people in culture C their first instinct would be to say well something wrong just happened Hmm. but then they have to stop and say well wait a minute now how how can I justify that because that by that culture's beliefs they're right in their invasion so I have to concede that they're they're right but at the same time you know, what do I do about culture A being invaded? We saw a very concrete example of that in 1990 when Saddam Hussein's Iraq invaded the country, the adjoining country of Kuwait. The Iraqis claimed that Kuwait was really a province of Iraq and had, had been separated by historical accident but should be reunited. The Iraqis claimed they firmly believed that that Kuwait was a province of Iraq, and so invaded it and subjugated it. Now the world stood in horror at this invasion and banded together to form a coalition to fight Saddam Hussein and the Iraqi invaders, saying it was fundamentally morally wrong to invade a sovereign country. So that gave the lie to the cultural relativist thesis. Yeah, because, you know, if you really truly are a cultural relativist, then you're going to have to be willing to stand on the sidelines of a lot of these kind of examples, which, of course, aren't just textbook examples, as you point out. There's Mm -hmm. real-world examples Mm -hmm. everywhere. I Mm -hmm. mean, some people are are now saying, look what's happening in Darfur. Yes. Um, If you're a cultural relativist, Mm it seems to me you can't even stand up and say, look what's happening in Darfur. You just have to stipulate from the beginning that whatever is happening there is fine as long as at least somebody there believes it's right. 
if the Janjaweed believe it's right to kill and rape um, other people in Darfur and impose their will on them, then who are you to condemn that as an outsider? Right, and that's the most common line of thinking that I've heard people make that, uh, who profess to be relativist. Who <laughs> am I to judge? And I think a lot of it comes down to a reluctance people have in making judgments. I come up against this uh, quite a lot when I teach ethics. You know, who am I to judge other people? And uh, I respond to that in two ways, which might help help us out of this problem of relativism. Number one, uh, you can't go through life without making judgments. How, how can you do that? Mm-hmm. Uh, I ask people sometimes when I teach the class, are you married? And they'll say yes. Well, did you just randomly run up to the first person you saw on the street and marry them? No, of course not. You you had to pick somebody. You made a judgment, a series of judgments to get to that state of being married. And another th- way to think about it perhaps is when when we look at these ethical theories and try to ask ourselves, are are we justified in having this belief? Maybe don't think about it as judging someone else. Think about it as encouraging people to judge their own actions because if mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. you know, to use the example of Darfur if you could get the people in the situation themselves to reflect on what they're doing, they themselves would judge it to be wrong. It's not that we're coming in and bringing some external uh, uh, value into the situation that is foreign. They could see themselves. In fact, uh, Rachel uses the uh, female circumcision example as a good example. Mm -hmm. Uh, The people who practice that make the argument that there are certain benefits, but by their own admission the benefits that they believe are there can tangibly be shown not to be there. So it's not that we're bringing in an outside standard to say, here's why you're wrong and let us tell you how to do it. It's by their own view they can be shown to be wrong. One of the main criticisms I have of this kind of thinking is that it cuts off critical thinking at the knees because critical thinking, and we claim that is the fundamental virtue of philosophy, Critical thinking means making an evaluation, assessing something as good or better than something else. Now, we can't critically evaluate any moral action if everyone is relative to every person who commits a moral action. Uh, it makes it impossible for us to criticize other people's actions as right or wrong. Yeah, and, and a part of that, the problem there is that it makes it impossible to claim or hope for moral progress. Indeed. I mean, think about uh, during the, the, the time in this country when uh, the civil rights struggle was going on. Uh, people were fighting for civil rights, for voting, for equality, to be able to uh, uh, eat in the you know, same restaurants, go to the same restrooms, drink out of the same water fountains. A lot of people, I think today young people don't remember or even know that there was such a thing as white water fountains and colored water fountains in the South, and, and bathrooms as well. And so think about that struggle in terms of a relativist. It wouldn't make any sense. The only sense in which that struggle could be coherent is that people were trying to improve their lot, trying to make things better mm-hmm. for themselves and their children. Uh, but from a relativist standpoint, the concept of a better arrangement doesn't make any sense. Makes no sense at all. Especially, for example, in the, in the status of women. 
Before 1920, women were not allowed to vote in this country. Now, how can we say that women are in a better place now than they were before 1920? We can say it because we have standards that a woman has fundamental human rights, which include the right to vote, to be a determining figure in her society. Um, Yeah, and so to deny the standard uh, means that you have to deny that that there's been progress. That's right. Or maybe you know some people might say, well, but I don't I don't think it's better that women can vote. (laughs) I'm not saying that myself. Mm -hmm. Somebody might say that, but you couldn't even say that if you were a relativist. You can't make any claims of better or worse unless you concede that there's some standard to measure it by. That's exactly right. And uh, the relativists just cannot say that society is ever getting better. Better by what standard? So that's, that's what you're, you're hinting at here. Along those same lines, the, the relativist gets himself involved in conflicting moral duties. What if, what if two values or two cultures clash? Uh, what, if a, what if a relativist is a member of two different cultures at the same time? Immigrants f- frequently find themselves in that position. An immigrant from, say, the Central African Republic comes to the United States and has this value of female genital mutilation and wants to exercise what he considers a right or she considers a right and a duty but can't do it in the United States culture where a physician would be expelled, would lose his license or her license for, for mutilating a person like that. What culture prevails? Which one is right? Now many people I think have a, have a, a response to that which I suspect is inadequate, but they they uh, quickly uh, jump to it. The answer there is simple. When in Rome, do as the Romans do, right? The old saying. To me, that, that hides a lot of problems, because it, if, if you really believe that as a relativist, then you have to be prepared to do some quite disturbing things in the name of going along with whatever culture you happen to be in. So in 1939, if I happen to be alive and a relativist moving from Switzerland to Germany, Mm. then what I should do once I settle into Germany is go out and persecute some Jews, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Now, Mm -hmm. I find that somewhat disturbing to think that that could be moral just because I happen to go into a culture where that belief exists then mm-hmm. it must be okay for me to do it. Sure, sure. But the minute I cross the border, an artificial distinction at best, then it all of a sudden becomes wrong for me to do that. How can an artificial cons- construct like a national border be the difference between a moral principle being right and being wrong? That's really what the relativist is saying, it seems that's, to me. That's right. And the whole world rose up against that, that kind of thinking that that. that just being a member of a race makes you subject to being persecuted. So there was a universal moral consensus of mankind, and that culminated in, in the, uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights by the United Nations in 1948, that a consensus of people agreed that there are universal rights, um, independent of cultures. And one of the philosophers we've talked about before, Wittgenstein has an interesting way of of putting this in the philosophical investigations. He imagines somebody asking the question, which is relevant to the point you just made. So you were saying that human agreement decides what is true and what is false? And I think this is a common 
uh, mm-hmm. uh, question that the relativist has. Sure. Well, all that all that human rights declaration is is just you know we just decided to agree for an arbitrary uh, reason. But Wittgenstein responds to that by saying that it's what human beings say that is true and false, and they agree in the language they use. And then he. He, he points out that this is not agreement in opinions, but in form of life, which I think gets to the point that, that critics of relativism are trying to make, that it's not simply an agreement in opinions that we've come to on the question of what's right and wrong. It's, it's much deeper than that. There's something fundamental about the way we live our life as human beings, whether it's in culture A or culture B or culture C, that makes these things right or wrong. It seems to me that the standard for humanity has to do with being human, whatever that means. It, it, it means having a, a mind, an intellect. It means having a, a will, a freedom of choice. And it means having some need to associate with other people. All those things constitute humanity. Now, it doesn't matter what culture you're from. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that anyone who violates one's fundamental freedoms, freedom of choice violates freedom of association or violates um, the ability to know commits an act against humanity and that would seem to be universally wrong and and it can be shown to be wrong independent of the culture that you happen to be in that doesn't mean that people aren't going to believe that it's right it's you can find people to believe almost anything is right but the mere fact that somebody believes that it's right to subjugate others persecute them on the basis of race uh, or, or gender or what have you, that, that doesn't mean that, that that is right. You know, A lot of people will say, well, yeah, I see what you're saying, but Hitler believed it was right. Well, do we really want to use Hitler as our mm-hmm. moral exemplar? One moral exemplar could be the profession you and I are in as teachers. We, we consider it a, a good, worthwhile thing to roll back the boundaries of ignorance. And it would seem to me that, that someone who promoted ignorance and, and tried to extend the boundaries of ignorance would be doing a wrong thing, a reprehensible thing, a crime against humanity. It doesn't matter what culture we come from, what religious beliefs we have, just that general notion that there, there is a, a value called knowledge, learning, and to violate it, to, to hold it back from people, to withhold it from people, is wrong. Sure, yeah. Now, some people might say that there's another moral exemplar that's much more important in ethics and morality than anything we've discussed so far, and maybe that can be the subject of another discussion. That is the moral exemplar of God as the basis for morality. That'll be a good discussion. Yeah. This podcast is proud to be a part of the Blueberry Network. Find freshly picked podcasts just for you at Blueberry.com. That's Blueberry, no ease, dot com.